0: Hi, I'm Eric Marzenkowski, and I'm Alistair Rathbone. Welcome to A Brief History of Cinema where we, that is me, Eric Marzenkowski, and me, Alistair Rathbone, watch movies from the 5th edition of 1001 Movies to See Before You Die and talk about them, together, as two distinct entities. In this week, we'll be discussing the 1956 Jean-Pierre Melville film Bob le Flembourg or Bob the High Roller. Eric, would you like to take it away? Thank you, Al, I would.
1: I'm Eric Marcinkowski, and... I'm Alistair Rathbone. And that is an imposter. Ladies
0: and gentlemen,
2: it's Riley McDonald from the Hammer Time podcast.
0: I tried to escape from my office studio down the hall, and then they grabbed me and forced me in this studio. Please, if you are listening to this, and I assume at least one person listens to this, call somebody. I need help. I need to stop this podcasting game.
1: No, you sit there, and you watch a bunch more French foreign movies and talk about them, Riley...
0: Well, if they're of the caliber of Bob Flambour, I'm down for that. Because I don't know about you guys, but this movie was fantastic.
1: It was fantastic. I, um, I really like this movie. I was watching it, and as I was watching it, I was discovering that it was the inspiration for the Ocean's Eleven movies. The originals and also the remakes with George Clooney, Matt Damon, and all those. Uh, how many? I think there were 11 of them. Uh, it's, I
0: think greater than eight. So yes, this is a fantastic movie, but what is this movie about?
2: Glad you asked that, Riley. Uh, this is a movie about Bob, or as they refer to him, Bob, Bob is a gambler. We learn through the film that he was a former bank robber, uh, and is just sort of living by his wits as a gambler in the Montmartre area of Paris, and yeah, making his life as a just going around every night trying to win his money for rent and food and everything else
1: yeah he uh, has a fantastic apartment with 45 foot ceilings because clearly it's a set that was uh well actually i the
0: don't window. know i don't think that was a set the this is, and this is something we can get into later but i think this style of french new wave of which this film belongs they didn't build sets they no. found places to shoot and they shot on location in those places i don't think they had the money to build a set i think this is just somebody's like swanky post-war apartment they talked into letting them film in
1: i mean they
2: apparently had the money to get that sweet ass caddy oh Oh, yeah yeah,
1: there was the cadillac in france and they didn't make cadillacs in france so that's pretty impressive Mm -hmm. he that's bob's car he drives around he's a successful silver-haired fox he has uh, uh, he eats steak dinners every night.
0: He has a great time. He has a great time. Uh, even though he doesn't appear to be the world's greatest gambler, he often loses. And by about 30 minutes into this movie, he's flat broke, which kind of is where the plot to this movie kicks off. So Bob, who has spent his whole life as a, a criminal, now finds himself out of money. And then one of his associates, Roger, lets him know that uh, a casino in, uh, the nearby, uh, Deauville care, uh, has on hand during the Grand Prix, uh, 800 million francs in its vault. And so Bob decides to go in for one last score with Roger and a motley assortment of France's criminal underworld. We've got Save Casey Pranker. Affleck. Yeah. We've got Scott Kahn. We got, yeah. um,
1: uh, the nerd. The the computer guy. And it's all all
2: bankrolled by a very snappy-dressing Scotsman.
1: Played by Elliot Gould. Played by
0: Elliot Gould. So they decide to rob this uh, casino, make off with the money, and so that's that's, that's basically the plot.
1: Similar to Ocean's Eleven, where the plot of the movie, or most of the time that you're spending with, is the setup for the heist. Uh, In this movie, it's even more extreme. The heist happens in, in, what, like two minutes from the end? Two or three minutes from the end? This is like one of those... It's an older style of movie, so most of the credits are at the beginning. The end credits are just kind of, oh, the movie's over, it's done. So the heist happens in like three minutes from the end.
0: I think that's partly because, whereas a movie like Ocean's Eleven is is all about the con. This movie's kind of about two things. It's about the con, but it is also about this sort of other plot about Bob's protege, who I his name is Paulo. I believe he is the love child of Miles Teller and Screech Powers from Saved by the Bell.
1: Uh, I believe he is the love child of Shia LaBeouf and a young Sean Penn.
2: I agree. I, I got a lot of Shia LaBeouf looks and mannerisms but out of that actor.
1: I like what you said about Miles Teller. And I think if you threw a little bit of Miles Teller in the mix, um, maybe stick him in some sort of transportation device that takes him to an alternate world and they all get mashed together into like a stretchy person. You get uh, Shia LaBeouf in this movie.
0: And he falls in love with a young woman. And uh, I suppose, uh, judging by Eric's very disapproving look, I guess I should underline, young <laughs> woman uh, Very Uh named Anne. The yes. actress who played her, Isabel Corey, at the time of this film was 17 years old. She kind of captivates this young man and in his eagerness to impress her he kind of spills the beans about this uh heist plot which ends up causing through a series of of issues causes the plan to fail yeah. uh,
1: well the cops catch wind of it through um and tells another guy who she who's a
2: snitch for the cops
1: yeah he's trying to be a snitch for the cops to get out of yeah. some bad dealings he's been involved with. Yeah, this Uh, guy... He's a pimp. Yeah, Yeah, he's a pimp, and he got caught for that, Mm -hmm. and the cops want to throw him away, but so he offers up this details about the heist to kind of save his own neck. Paulo found out that Mark slept with Anne. Paulo didn't like it. He was truly in love with her, at least infatuated with her. He shoots Mark, and that's what happens to Mark, but he's already told the cops, so the cops are on to their heist.
0: Yes. So this is... Not so much a movie about, like, again, I think when we when we think of movies like Ocean's Eleven, that's a movie that's driven by the plot. It is a movie about how you want to see the heist come off. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case in this movie. Do you guys? Like, it's not so much about this plot. Yeah, no,
2: I, I would agree with you on, on that because the whole idea of the heist comes... Quite, we've been watching the movie for a while and watching Bob's life as a gambler. So at least initially for the first half hour of this movie, I thought this was just going to be about maybe a, a sort of a we're going to watch as his life spins out of control with a crippling mm-hmm. gam- gambling addiction. I was expecting that. So I was quite uh, surprised and also quite happy to see that it was transitioning into a, like a straight up heist movie. But it's not a heist movie as you would As we think about it now where it is all about the heist whereas this is more about more about the characters involved in the heist than the heist itself it's sort of an afterthought
1: sure like bob as you said we spend so much time with him in the opening of the movie we learn about his life and he's kind of the thread that we follow throughout the entire thing Mm -hmm. his plot is the one we are most concerned with all the other characters are mostly secondary to him in the end He's at the casino and he makes a promise not to gamble anymore until the heist is over. But I think he's a gambling addict, clearly. He makes his living at it, but he can't stop. Like Um, He
2: even has a slot machine in a closet in his apartment. Yes,
1: (laughs) and he gets to the casino and he's kind of scoping it out before the heist happens at 5am the next morning. And he ends up spending the entire evening gambling and winning... I don't even know how much money. Uh, millions of francs, it looks like. Like uh, Two young boys have to carry out platters of money to the car uh, at the end of the movie.
2: Basically how I think every time I go to the casino, how it's yeah. going to end.
1: How <laughs> well, I hope it's going to end. Well, I mean, it's, it's chance, right? Like yeah. you know, The more you lose, eventually you're going to win. That's just how, that's just how probability works, clearly.
0: I'm going to throw a controversial opinion in here. The heist part of the movie was my least favorite. I really liked the sort of plotless slice-of-life story about Bob and his routine in the Paris nightlife best, and I thought when the movie kicks into the plot, sure, that's fun and that's good, and we get to see some, you know, we get to see the architecture for a movie like Ocean's Eleven, but I thought the movie was at its best when it's not so wedded to this storyline. That's so what happens when you invite me in here, friends. I just start throwing bombs.
1: I actually would agree with you. So Dude. this bomb is diffused. <laughs> I agree. The stuff with Bob in the beginning, I thought the movie was kind of aimless, but now that I've finished watching it, I do think that was probably the strongest parts of the movie. Um, the high stuff, once I kind of realized what was going on and it was, you know, the, the, uh, the clouds kind of fell away and I could see what was going on, I was excited, but by the end, I was just kind of back to wanting to know more about bob and i like that at the end of the movie he just loses his mind he doesn't lose his mind but he forgets about the heist entirely and he just goes back to gambling now he's successful most gambling addicts eventually are not successful so you know it's a bit of a false portrayal of being an out of control gambling addict
2: but to bring it back to what you're saying riley i think that you could say that that's kind of true for almost all heist heist movies is that the best parts of the movie is not when they're pulling off the actual heists when they're building to it like my favorite things in all in both the original and the remake of the italian job it's what they do to get to do the job ant-man for example for another good heist movie my favorite parts of the movie are always like when uh michael pena is explaining things about the heist i like that way more than the actual heist itself and
0: I guess to me, like, um, I, I think, like, if this movie didn't even have anything about the heist, like, to me, the most affecting, the the best part of this movie is when Bob drives Anne up to his his childhood home, which is not in Montmartre, which is a sort of fashionable upper-scale uh, area of Paris. He drives her to this, like, more run-down area of Paris, and he kind of gives her his backstory. He was born, you know, like a poor kid to a working-class mm-hmm. family... And he ran away from that life and became a very, you know, successful man through his criminal enterprises and then came back to like lift his mother out of poverty. Like that story to me was way more interesting than even if it's not about the heist itself in its execution, it's still about building up to this moment where in heist movies, which is what you're saying, Al, where I find like if we had just followed this sort of like criminal, but not a bad guy, like a very sort of honorable figure in his sort of twilight years i'm not saying this is a bad movie or it becomes a less interesting movie when the heist kicks off i just found myself most enchanted by this sort of night the nightlife of this kind of quasi criminal figure yeah, in no, the,
2: I, I'd agree with that. If there was no heist in this movie, I would still be very pleased with the movie. Overall. Exactly, it that's doesn't need to the heist to to make to suck you in. Exactly,
1: the, the movie really jumps horses uh, at about the thirty-minute mark. It's on one horse, and that's this slice of life. You know, it could be a tragic tale. It could even be a the character of Bob having a triumph, or even having the opposite of a triumph. Whatever you would call that, some I sort think of, it's called a failure, uh, a failure or a crisis, something like that. Um, that would have been an interesting movie, and then it jumps at thirty minutes in into this heist film. Uh, I kind of would have liked to see both films separated out from each other.
0: Uh, yeah, that's a good way of putting it. So, what what I found really interesting about this movie too is how much it seemed to be commenting on. How would I put this? How it seemed to be commenting on. American influences on this French world. And I think it's most notable in the main character, whose name is Robert Montaigne, or Montaigne, but they always call him by the extremely American Bob. And you guys were joking earlier about how awkward it sounds when the characters say it. I think that's by design. I don't think... I don't... I'm not French. I don't... I've never been to France, but I don't think that's a name that comes up too often. And I think it's meant to sound rather strange bob is such a quintessentially american laconic name for somebody and transposing it into this sort of like vibrant post-war french world sounds weird and i think it's meant to because i think this movie is very consciously trying to draw on an american heritage of crime films and and also place itself in that Canon or style. So there's a there's one scene where I think it's Roger and Paulo, Bob's friend and Bob's protege are walking down the street, and Paulo says something like, "Is uh, does Bob copy the Americans?" and and Roger mm-hmm. says, "No, the Americans copied the French."
2: Yeah, specifically the the Bonneau gang. Which mm-hmm. I, I was having a hard time trying to um, research some of the the cultural things and historical things that stood out to me, and I haven't been able to find them was putting things together quite quickly but i didn't realize that uh the american military or the Allied military would still be in France in the mid 1950s
0: well we do have that amazing uh, sailor who kind of picks up Anne right at the beginning speaking yeah. with a French accent so flat and, oh, and yeah. midwestern yeah um, yeah what's
1: he what's I, I wrote, even wrote down he's like hell uh, you Is want it, to go for want to go for a ride something like that in
0: in French that sounds basically exactly the way you said it like uh dans mon moto yeah, something yeah, yeah. something to that effect, and yeah. it's super. Basically, funny.
1: how we sound when we attempt to speak French. Yes. Yeah. Well, this movie—would uh, you classify? It? Clearly, it takes a lot of influence from crime and gangster type movies. Would you call this a noir film?
2: I definitely ca- call it kind of a, a, a noir film because of its more cynical attitude. You have a heart. A lot of people may want to jump and say it's not noir because he's not like a private detective. He's not falling in sort of the same narrative device, but it still has the the feel of a noir film.
0: Oh, certainly. I would yeah. definitely call this a noir film, specifically because one thing noir as a sort of thematic style does over and over again is say that these characters have no escape. Like, it's almost this this um, predestined course they're on. And Bob, who is, as, as you guys keep bringing up, this sort of habitual gambler, this sort of lifetime crook, is unable to get out of that... Uh, lifestyle. So that's why I think the heist part of this movie is there is because it is this kind of inescapable pull that draws Bob back in. And as we see at the end of the movie, Bob carries around a coin that he flips with him. And uh, in something that this movie 100% stole from the dark knight, uh, (laughs) it is a two, it is a two headed coin. Mm -hmm. So Bob makes his own luck. Like he is, he's following a script here. So. Mm -hmm. The one, th- the one way that this deviates though from noir, and this is where Al, I think you're right, is that noir always tends to have a kind of nihilistic ending. The characters die, they go to jail without any hope of escape. In this movie, uh, and, and, and I think in almost every noir film I've ever watched, the femme fatale figure is punished for her transgressions by death. In this movie, Bob is arrested, but it's, it's heavily implied that he's gonna get away scot free. Um, and Anne, who is our sort of femme fatale figure, although she's not so much consciously malicious as she is just kind of naive, um, naive, precisely. She is fine. She's actually kicking it at Bob's pad. The only person who dies is Paulo, who is shot during the uh, the uh, failed robbery. But he was kind of a goof. So I don't think any of us care too much.
1: I, I did uh, not again. particularly care. I saw a hint of it in this movie. I think this movie would have been good if there were more small cons instead of one large con. I kind of like the idea of Bob needing, I mean this is rewriting the movie and second-guessing it, but we see for a second three-card Monty, Uh, It's just in a quick scene where Bob's protege Paulo is running a gambit on some guy, Uh, might be one of the other conspirators. And it's Three Card Monty, which is a famous game as just a short con. A very short con. You, you turn some rubes and you take their money and you run away. I would like to have seen more of that kind of stuff, where Bob needs to feed his gambling addiction, necessarily, or he has to try to run some game to get some cash to pay off someone. Maybe he's not successful. Yeah, I think that would have been interesting. A bit more focus on cons. No,
2: I, I, I agree there that there should have been- uh, should have been at least a moment where we see what happens when he does completely run out of money. Because he doesn't quite get fly. Like, he's he's not thrown out on the street destitute. But I wanted, I would have liked to see that, like, how does he, he build himself back up when he eventually loses everything? Because if you're that hardcore hardcore into your gambling addiction, you've probably lost everything at least once or twice by now.
0: I totally agree. I think that would have been a great little bit of this movie, because we we see kind of the ups and downs of Bob when he's flush with cash. He's sort of outgoing. He's happy. He's gregarious. And then when he's lost his money, he can be angry um, and sort of shut off from people and very short with people. But it's only really in those character interactions. And I think you guys are totally right. It would have been great to see a guy who gets wiped out, but who has spent his whole life hustling for money and who is a very smart guy. Running these kind of desperate cons that Paulo is doing. Um, I think that would have added a little more flavor, like more flavor to this movie. Um, and it would have also tied into, see, again, a thing I loved about this movie is the kind of, the sense of community almost that uh, is fostered in this sort of nighttime Paris scene where everybody kind of knows each other. Bob is really good friends with Commissioner LeDrew, who's the, like, vice squad, uh, lieutenant. Um, they have like a very buddy-buddy relationship. Bob is very good friends with the owner of the bar, Yvonne. Everybody, and like, everybody says like, oh, Mr. Bob, I, I didn't yeah. know it was you. <laughs> like, there's a sense that everybody kind of has a relationship to each other. And I like that sense of this. this community is not necessarily one of you know, violence and backstabbing and deceit all the time. But it's actually almost this this place of comradeship that I found really interesting about this movie. And I would have loved to see more of that. I don't know if you guys felt the same way. No,
2: I feel... Yeah, because this is showing you a part of the underworld that we don't really see. We see in movies and on the news and every place else, we see the the really dark and malicious and violent natures of the underworld. But we never really see the non-violent parts of it as well. Because, again, not everything they were doing was 100% legal. Mm. But they're not evil people. They have, like, Bob makes it very clear right from the beginning when, when the one guy who eventually becomes a snitch, uh, when he finds out that he's a that guy's a, a, a pimp, that he's like, Oh, well, you can just get the fuck out and never, ever talk to me again. Mm. Because fuck you.
1: Yeah. One thing I wonder about this is this movie takes place probably in 1956 or 1955, mid-50s. That's when it was made. That's probably when it takes place. Yeah. So post-World War II France, um, the people who are young in this movie were probably born just before World War II broke out, 1930 to 1938. Bob himself looks like a bit of an older gent. He probably was born in the 10s or the 20s. He might even have fought in World War II. They don't deal with that, but... I think they I do s- mention in passing that he did fight in the war. I'm pretty it, sure they do
0: they mention did. that he okay. did fight in the war.
1: Yeah, But what I mean is, this movie is like that upswing of the post-World War II reconstruction of Paris and, and, and France and all the young people kind of having a nightlife to go out to. So,
2: Well, and it's young people now in the 50s and 60s, I believe we mentioned this when we talked about Faster, Pussycat, Kill, mm-hmm. Kill. This is when, it, it's the 1950s and 1960s, that is when youth culture as we understand it is born. Before World War II, teenagers weren't really a thing. You mm-hmm. were going to school till you were like 10 if you were lucky. You and if gone. you were rich, you were going to school longer. But maybe if you were lucky, you are going to school at 10 and then you were working. You and probably had kids by the and a, and a wife and a family by the time you were eighteen, nineteen, and so. But now with the the boom, yeah, we do get to see this new li- it, It's a very new phenomenon. This
1: whole yeah, a new nightlife that probably never really existed, based around youth as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and not only is that the case in the content of the film, characters like Anne and these and Paulo, these younger people who are replacing these much older figures like Bob, but also in what this fil- like who is making this film and and this is this is a kind of a nice follow up to your guys version uh, your guys episode on vagabond which is about a, a you know it's it's a new wave director after this new wave period here um what melville's doing this is the sort of birth of the french new wave cinema which is one of the most significant uh and important historical moments for cinema and it's basically a kind of rejection in the post-war period by a bunch of young, upcoming intellectuals who are film critics and academics and who really, really, really love film. They, they're they kind of pushing back at what they see as the sort of boring and staid French movie industry, which is very like highbrow, making dull adaptations of novels. And instead, they want to do something that's sort of much more Iconoclastic and tied into this emergent youth culture that Al's talking about. And so this movie is, is kind of a little bit outside of what, uh, is considered to be New Wave, which starts 1959, 1960. Uh, but the, the style of this movie, a lot of it is shot on handheld cameras. It's shot on location. Um, there's no sets being built. There's no, um, there's no sound stages or anything. All of these places are real locations with, an almost sort of guerrilla filmmaking style with long takes and sort of strange cuts. All of this is characteristic of the new wave uh, cinema, which will be popularized by people like Agnes Bardat, who you guys talked about with Vagabond, or Jean-Luc Godard, or Francois Truffaut. And this movie, I think, while not being officially part of the new wave canon, is definitely setting the tone for it. And so it's kind of this confluence of all these major upcoming things. And I think that's another reason why it's so fascinating to watch.
2: Mm -hmm. You did mention the fact that they used handheld cameras. I believe I read somewhere when I was researching this, that this is one of the first major films, like feature length films to actually use a handheld camera. Right. Instead of your traditional big mounted setups.
0: Yeah, you're right.
2: Yeah, no. And that's very important with the way that they're, they're filming it. It's, um, a lot of the shots that were set up by uh, Henri de feels a lot like watching a modern film. Like, I've seen these kinds of shots before in modern films that I grew up watching. Yeah. I can't name any off the top of my head, but when you, when you see it, you're like, I recognize this kind of setup and the way you're using the camera with the set and the actors are interacting within the shot.
1: I especially love the opening of the movie. It's these kind of dreamy, I mean, it's a black and white movie but i could i could even picture the color like this paris at sunrise and it's all misty and dewy and uh, and we see her kind of for the first time very early in the movie walking home after who knows what a party a party or something like that and she's walking home and there's a there's a cafe that's just kind of open she stops to get some food at like 5am or 6am or something like that there's actually a narrator in this movie who's kind of narrating the different chapters. He says at the beginning, uh, "The bars just turned off their lights and day is now upon us," or something along those lines. And yeah, this this movie doesn't have a lot of scenes set in the daytime.
0: No, it's a very it's a very night film, and I think like that's where it really thrives, and that's why I think that that oh, the, the movie starts and ends the daytime. It starts and ends basically about six o'clock. Mm. Um, and the rest, the, the majority of the film, there are obviously some daytime scenes, but the majority yep. of the film is set at night. And I like the sense that like, it almost feels like this is one long dream mm. that's, that's being bordered by daytime. Mm. Um, that's Like
1: twi- really twilight, like yes. the exact moment of time where it kind of the sun has risen enough that there is light around, but it has not crested the horizon. That kind of twilight hour between day and night.
0: And and I wonder if that adds this this sort of like bleak tone to this movie because we have the young Paulo who is supposed to be representative of this new vibrant post-war generation. He dies and it's Bob, the old figure, who is the one who lives on and who is going to live on. I don't know if that, that sense of like this, this sort of nighttime party is about to come to an end or if I'm just reading into things here.
2: I'm. I'm not saying that. That's that's wrong. It's a very interesting interpretation. But I, with the whole with with Paulo's death, I interpret more as a a word of caution to to this new generation, and we see that when a bit more when uh, Anne meets Bob. And he's sort of giving her advice of like, you really probably shouldn't get into cars with all these strange guys because they're gonna start pimping you out and stuff like that. Like it's a real slippery slope. You're you didn't grow up around here. you're you don't know the dangers here. So I, I think what that's trying to say to this younger generation, which is having more freedom, it's like you should at least listen to some of the lessons of of the elders to to save yourself from being because if you become too cocksure in it, There's going to be a bad end for you in the case of Apollo, because he's so cocksure and confident about things. He does end up getting shot because he's not paying enough proper attention.
0: Right. Mm. Uh, Well, that that kind of leads to an interesting question here. Do you guys uh, do you guys read uh, Bob as being the hero of the like? He's obviously the protagonist of this movie, but is he a heroic figure? Like, is he a is he a He's obviously a likable and charismatic guy, but would you would you consider him to be a sort of like? positive figure or or is there is he more destructive because what's interesting is the movie doesn't to my mind really come down one way or the other it's like on the one hand he is this sort of like elegant um debonair james bondian or or danny ocean figure but on the other hand unlike danny ocean who seems to be like who seems to have almost no problems whatsoever bob is like this addict who is obsessed with gambling and who who can't really break out of it. And I don't know if he... Wh- wh- the movie doesn't seem to be saying ultimately, like, this is a very positive figure of, like, the, the flashy criminal or uh, this guy is a bum.
1: I think... I don't know if the movie treats him in a heroic way necessarily, but the film also doesn't do a good job of showing the downsides to his life. Before the movie gets to that, we jump horses jump horses into the heist section of the movie. It kind of remind me of Belle de Jour, which we watched watched a few uh, weeks ago, where the movie was very glamorous about its portrayal of prostitution in the '60s in Paris. And this felt really, it was showing all the good things, but very few of the negative things about that nightlife. Right. Uh, there's a part where Anne gets drunk and she has sex with. Paulo? Or mm-hmm. she has sex with Mark. I can't remember exactly who. But she wakes up the next morning and she's like, oh, my head hurts. Can I have some water? And as opposed to like ugh, waking up the next morning and just hungover is all hell. And then they're right back out the next night. I mean, Bob's an older guy. He can't... Nobody wakes up hungover in this movie. Either in from alcohol or
0: I don't know. Bob seems pretty wiped out in that first scene. Like, he goes yeah. home at, yeah. like, 6 in the morning, and he unplugs his phone, and he wakes up in the middle of the night, and he's completely discombobulated. And then he goes back to bed um, and wakes up later on. Like, he seems pretty out of it. Okay.
2: Yeah, and just because we don't, it's not explicitly said that they're hungover, I think we can take it as red. Like, we don't see him a poop in the movie, but obviously they must. Bob is definitely not a hero. But he's not evil either. I'd I'd use the Dungeons and Dragons term.
1: He's more of a lawful neutral. I mean, he's a criminal. He's He's totally like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to rob this casino. But he
0: does definitely have a code of honor, as we see in that scene with Mark, where he says, like, you know, I'll help out, you know, my crime buddies, but you're a pimp. Get out of here. And he wants to... In spite of his, you know, very sort of paternalistic attitude, he does really want to help Anne. There's a scene where he he slaps her. And watching that scene, uh, I saw the movie twice. Like, the actor, he straight up slaps Isabel Corey. Like, that is not a... That's not a stage thing. He hits her hard. Um, but as soon as that moment is done, he immediately walks over to the bartender and gives her the key to his apartment and says, like, give this to Anne. Um, because she's gonna need a place to stay. so he does have this sort of warped but relatively consistent code of ethics mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that directs him throughout the movie. So I think and and he is friends with this um, police inspector. So I would say lawful neutral, is that what you said? yeah is is the correct alignment here, I guess? Well,
1: because he went to jail like 20 years previously and he's tried to stay on you know more or less the straight and narrow. Uh, at least in terms of not committing any heists or bank robberies or anything like that. Yeah,
0: it's like penny anti-gambling. Like, Actually, I don't even think any of the things... All the gambling stuff he's doing, I don't think is really that illegal.
1: Yeah, was well, gambling illegal in the 50s in France? That's he's, a question for the audience.
0: Well, he definitely goes... Like the horse racing, which is where he makes most of his money. Mm. That stuff is straight up legal. Well, yeah, that's like, legit.
1: And the, it
2: looks like like some of the poker games that he's in, that doesn't look like it's legal. But then there's the pubs that all have the little dice bowl game mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it may be like um billiards here like where you've got pool tables where if you start putting money on the table the guy who re- owns the place will not be happy with you but if you are subtle about it yeah you can bet on the pool game between you and your friends
0: this strikes me as a thing where it's it's not legal but it's not something that's being rigorously enforced by the police
2: sort of like marijuana laws here in canada Technically it's still not legal, but no one gives too much of a shit about it.
0: So we will watch a uh, Bob the we will watch a movie about Bob just lighten <laughs> one up.
1: I uh, didn't they make that. It's called Pineapple Express.
0: Largely the same film. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, very, yeah, Truffaut was a real influence on uh... Paul Greengrass, who made, who directed Pineapple. You
0: got both of those people wrong. This movie <laughs> is directed by Jean-Pierre Melville. And who did do Pineapple? Oh, it was um, David Gordon Green. Oh,
1: yeah, uh, see, oh, Green,
0: Green. What, what was that, 0.25 for yeah. two? Yeah. But uh, should we talk a bit about Jean-Pierre Melville? Because I think he's a rather fascinating director. Mm-hmm. He's born Jean-Pierre Grumbach, uh, a child of Alsatian French Jews, And he took on the name Melville after the American author Herman Melville. He wrote a slim volume called Moby Dick. He took this name on specifically while he was part of the French resistance fighting the Nazis in France during World War II. Melville was his nom de guerre. And according to my research, he personally took part in Operation Dragoon, which was the Allied invasion of southern France. So this guy, Jean-Pierre Melville, was hard as nails. And after the war... Uh, This, I pulled off Wikipedia. I should have done more research on it. He applied to be an assistant director, which I guess meant he applied with the studio system. I didn't know it was that hierarchized, but apparently you had to apply to get a directing license. Hmm. And they told him no. So he was like, okay, I guess I will make my own movies. And that's how he started making these very independent films that were... The other thing we should say about French New Wave, extremely low budget, Hmm. Um, which shows... This movie was not made for a lot of money. There are not very many recognizable actors in it, but you kind of use what you have. And so that also, that sort of DIY aesthetic, is built into Melville's movies and into um French New Wave in general. And so Melville will go on to become one of the bigger names of French cinema in the post-war period. You guys have, are going to have some other movies of his coming up. Le Samurai, which is... Totally awesome.
2: I'm, I'm excited to watch that again.
0: Uh, Army of Shadows, The Red Circle, uh, a bunch of others will come up on your list. And he's just, he's kind of this major influence for people like Tarantino, Michael Mann, Jim Jarmish, the kind of, the cool gangster, mm-hmm. uh, st- stories we think of like Ghost Dog or Reservoir Dogs, any, any movie with dog in it, Snow Dogs, um, All Dogs Alpha Go to Heaven. Dog. Yeah. Uh, all of the dog these movies directly influenced by, uh melville so what did you guys think of his style did it work for you
1: i didn't think this movie uh this movie felt roughly in line in terms of the way it looked with other movies from around the time uh seven victims in the 40s it looked about as good as this in terms of lighting black and white very comparable looking uh jeanne was another french movie came out 1950 okay so about six years before this one Again, in terms of the look of the movie, it seemed relatively consistent. This movie did not seem that cheap to me. I had thought they built sets, so obviously they fooled me, uh, if they didn't actually. But the lighting was a bit stark and kind of interesting to look at.
2: Uh, I really liked it for the pacing of the movie, because this movie clocks in at almost two and a half hours, if it, I'm not mistaken. Uh, an hour and
0: 90 minutes, 95 minutes.
2: Man, I thought it was long. Did good. you
1: watch it twice? <laughs> Maybe
2: I did. It, it seemed to move... It moved faster than you would thought. Like I was always surprised if I occasionally checked the time, and I was like, "Oh, we're this far into it." So I was really impressed with the pacing of it because it's. I think that's a good sign of a movie if 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 you don't notice how much time has elapsed mm-hmm. when you're watching it. So that that was the biggest thing that stood out to me that I liked about his choices was the st- the the pacing of the whole movie.
1: I made a note of that as well. The first thirty minutes, it seems like we're really being introduced to a lot of characters. Scenes are you know 15 second scenes 20 second scene 30 second scenes there's a lot of scene changes uh and you kind of get a view of all these people who they all are and it seems to take place over several days so you kind of get an idea of how lived in this world is pretty quickly in that opening before they jump over to the second section of the movie
0: lived in is a great phrase for it eric i think it's it's yeah i think again the best part of this movie is just how real the setting the geography uh the character interactions feel in those first 30 minutes and throughout the whole movie, but really in those more plotless um, elements of the first act, I find just like so fascinating. I would want to spend a whole movie just dealing with these sort of semi-respectable low lives and the people that kind of veer in and out of their orbit.
1: So I guess with that all said, would you, Al, Mm -hmm. recommend to see...
2: Is this a movie you should see before you die, Eric?
1: Yes, yes oh. it is.
0: Riley? Um, yes. I mean, as 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 heavy with my praises I've been for this movie, um I suppose if you if if you have a thousand and one movies to see before you die, yes, definitely. If your list is a little bit smaller, say it's like 30, maybe keep this one out, but it is it is a solid movie and and you can see the seeds of the gangster and the neo-noir and and all these genres taking root here so yeah sure definitely see this movie before you die
1: i'd say from a uh someone who's really interested in the history of film see this movie before you die to joe Schmo, who's just looking for a good movie to watch it is a pretty good movie it's interesting because it is the genesis of a lot of tropes and a lot of styles um do i n- think you need to see it before you die i actually don't think you need to see it because i would have loved to see the bob the gambler opening 30 minutes as a separate movie. I would like to see the second part, the heist, as a separate movie. I think there's probably better examples of each of those movies. Even in New Wave France movies, there's probably better examples. So I would say no.
0: A- a qualified. Yeah.
1: I mean, good. I liked it. Mm. There's probably better ones.
2: So now we've seen four French films, all within various parts within French history. We've seen stuff from the 80s another film from the 50s, and one from the 60s. Where does this rate for you among the other French films that we saw?
1: I'd put this above Belle du Jour and Je Interdite, but below Vagabond. Vagabond I... might be my favorite movie we've watched yet. This movie is just almost on the cusp of being something you should see before you die. But watch Vagabond instead.
2: Yeah, I, I agree, agree with you. Mostly, I, I almost have Vagabond and this movie tied, but they're very much... Better than Belle du Jour, but I've seen fucking whole, I'm sure Fifty Shades of Grey is better than Belle du Jour. Uh,
0: controversial opinions on a brief history
2: I fucking of hate that, I fucking hate Belle du Jour, and I'm, I have no regrets about hating that movie with a fiery passion. It's Just tie it
1: up to a tree and then whip it, why don't you?
2: And smear it with manure. Well, it was mud, It was mud. I still stand by manure. It was mud. Uh, and I never enjoyed Jeux Interdit. I think I, I I don't hate it as much as Belle de Jour. But yeah, this is almost as good as Vagabond in my mind.
1: Any uh any rapid recommendations? Uh, movies you've seen recently? Let's start with Riley.
0: Um, for another podcast I have guested on, I watched the 2011 Pedro Almodovar film The Skin I Live In, which was totally nuts. And without giving away anything about it, because that is a movie where. Uh spoiler warning definitely matters. I would say if you have a strong stomach, check it out uh because it is great, but it is it's a tough movie, but I really really liked it.
2: Really high on the gore factor?
0: Not so much on the gore factor as on the uh crushing um psychological trauma factor. Oh, okay, mm. never mind. I don't want to like
1: see Like a that. Requiem <laughs> for a Dream kind of
0: um, Like a Requiem for Five Dreams? Oh, <laughs> oh
1: Jesus. A Requiem for a Whole Evening of Dreaming. Yes. Because no, Requiem
2: wow. for a Dream is in the book, and I am not looking forward to the day I have to, to watch that movie again. Movie. I've seen it once, and I really, really don't want to have to watch it again. Yep. Now? Uh, yeah, I just saw X-Men Apocalypse, and if you're a diehard X-Men fan like myself, oh yeah, you're going to love this movie. It's amazing. If you're just a passing superhero movie fan... Like this, me. Yeah, this movie could stand to be about 25 minutes shorter. It's It drags a lot. So yeah, if you're not a massive X-Men fan, I wouldn't recommend X-Men Apocalypse.
1: Fair enough. I recently watched It Follows with Riley the other night. Uh, it is pretty great. I was kind of taking the piss out of it as I was watching it and being like, no, that's stupid. It's but,
0: not a very pleasant uh, aesthetic experience.
1: Uh, no, but it was it was very good. Uh, and every shot of that movie looked beautiful. Uh, I think that's the key. I mean, the the style and the plot of it is interesting, but the way it was made really elevates that movie. It Follows is great. I recommend it. So there you go. So what do you think? Should we fire up the old, uh, the old uh, uh, one-armed, one may, may I
0: touch the levers and pulleys? Please, okay, I insist. Um, now, do I need to strap in the harness first, or?
2: Well, you want to, you want to be secure. Okay. Yeah, health, health and safety is just going to nail us to the wall if you aren't wearing that harness.
0: What is the purpose of this deep sea diver helmet? Well, that's
2: just. Well, the you're going to find out. Once the bells and whistles start going off, okay. you're going to be really glad that you're wearing that.
1: Okay. Okay, so it looks like we're going to watch movie number 320. Riley, that is...
0: Oh, gentlemen, you are in for a treat. Uh, can you guess what year this would be? The
1: 320... 50,
2: uh, 19... Oh, so this would probably be 1960s.
0: Uh, Eric's closer. You have 1957, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Oh, yes!
2: awesome. Uh, so first Wait, Kurosawa. is that the... Is that, that's the Macbeth that's one, That's right? the Macbeth one. Oh, oh yes. my God.
0: I hope you enjoy seeing a real trained actor be shot at with arrows, because <laughs> this movie has it all. Oh um. my
2: God! I, I watched—I uh, had to watch a scene of this once when we were covering Macbeth in high school, and God. Damn, it made me fall in love with Kurosawa, because I was like, I need to watch the fuck out of all of his movies now. Th-
0: this is your first Kurosawa, isn't it, guys? Of it is. For the show. For yeah, the show, and yeah. there's like oh, eight man.
1: Kurosawa films in the book. I've it's- actually only seen, personally, I've only seen Rashomon. Which, great, loved it. But Rashomon's
0: my favorite, but this one is pretty close.
1: Awesome. So, I guess uh, we'll be back next week with... Uh, what's its Japanese title? Kumon no
0: Now, you should say that every time. Um, to really... <laughs> market it to the international audience
1: yes i'm sure that they will all be amazed by my ability to say japanese words throne of blood by akira kurosawa next week this has been a brief history of cinema you can follow us online facebook twitter soundcloud let us know what you think of the show i'm alistair rathbone i'm eric Marcinkowski,
0: and i am riley michelle see you next week will i be here too if you
1: want (laughs)